0: Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. In today's episode we continue our discussion about objects from history. 100 Bloody Objects. What do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number two. A cannabis
1: plant. Narco-warriors. The mind-bending truth of narcotics in
0: warfare. Editor's note, the title of our talk today has resulted in me being banned for life from Facebook with no appeal. I posted a heads-up of this show with a picture, and that was it, banned. So much for equity and free speech. Anyway, we soldier on. So, we're going to discuss the A to Z of narcotics in war, from the assassin to the Zulu. I have this tobacco box which belonged to my great-grandfather and was given to him in the first war as all soldiers by Princess Mary in 1914, with a note inside, rather tragic note, actually, which says, with best wishes for a happy Christmas and victorious New Year. Well, they had another four years in the meat grinder, as you know. So, what what are the areas? How does this break down? Well, what we're going to do today, Tom, is look at three areas.
1: We're going to look at narcotics that improve aggression and fearlessness which equals recklessness in a lot of situations then we're going to look at endurance drugs and then we're finally going to look at recreational drugs so we're going to go the whole gamut the first one aggression aggression as we all know is extremely important on the battlefield but you don't want to get it in the way of tactics one of the things about aggression fueling drugs is that tactics go out of the window. Quite often these drugs are associated with shame and ritual, with religion, with getting the participants, those who take it, into a fervor or even a stupor. They're there really to raise the pain threshold and to lower fear, reduce fear. And so you can see it from organisations like the Assassin's Cult, for example, I've used the assassins a lot in, in many of my historical thrillers because they're very useful. Uh, it's based on the word hashishin, hashishita. And so you immediately see that drugs were important there. And tactics weren't important, but religious fervour
0: and narcotics were. So it's um in the past, when things were perhaps a bit simpler on the battlefield, these drugs that enhanced aggression and fearlessness might have had a better effect than, say today under more complicated circumstances.
1: Yes, you wouldn't get someone who's bombed out of their mind on hashish being very good at training an artillery piece or working a drone. (laughs) Uh, With an assassin, for example, all you needed was someone who was fearless, who could rush the enemy with a knife. Uh, Their sheikh, the old man of the mountains, used to clap his hands and several would jump to their deaths off a cliff to show their loyalty and their devotion to the faith and the cause. They were, I suppose, the Abu Nidal, the mercenary terrorists of their day. I mean, even the Templars and the Hospitallers used to employ them. Um, Usually they were frontal attacks or they'd lie lie in wait, and sometimes there were their unexplained murders
0: to this day. But wasn't there one Crusader overlord who fell out of a window? With his
1: pet dwarf uh, <laughs> somewhere in the Holy Land. But he wasn't the first. If you go back to uh, the, the Old Testament, Jezebel was pushed out of a window by her eunuchs. Uh, so who would have thought they'd have the bulls?
0: There we go, defenestration and narcotic warriors, hand in hand.
1: uh, Yes, so they're around. But uh, apart from that kind of assassination, you also need to create real fanaticism on the battlefield. And going through history, you have people like the berserkers, who were really the suicide squad, the, the, the serious fanatics in the Viking hordes. Sometimes they would act alone, sometimes they would act in groups, they'd take their clothes off. They were, I suppose, naturists with attitude. But they would go into total frenzy. And again, tactics weren't required. They were just there to kill.
0: Yeah, uh, they, were, they fired up with a bit of mead or something as well. Uh,
1: they probably took magic mushrooms and hen bane uh, there were plenty of drugs around, a lot of hemp around, so uh, they weren't going to be short of things to get them into a frenzy. And also, together with bloodlust, that, that's uh, a, a hugely enough
0: to uh, tip you over the edge.
1: Uh, yes, it's going to put you put you in the mood for a fight. If you go through other armies, they all had their their crazies, whether it was the whirling dervishes, the or uh, the Jayalas and the Ottoman. Uh, forces who wore wild animal skins they they were all in a frenzy and they'd all attack the enemy without any regard for their own safety
0: okay was it even even the the famous warlike zulus would they have uh, taken anything it's always
1: believed that they were strongly influenced by drugs they were extremely impressive warriors but a bit of narco stimulant was was not against their beliefs. There was interlazy, which was a pep drug. There was bufone destitia, which was a sort of morphine from tumbleweed that essentially made them more impervious to pain. If you look at the 19th century, early 19th century, when Shark Kazuli was in charge, he used to make his warriors dance on thorns. And those who showed pain would have their brains beaten out by a witch doctor. So if I were one of them, I'd be cramming a lot of drugs in my mouth. And and, and they took took it in snuff form as well. At, at battles like Isindwana and Raw's Drift, they carried horns of, of powder around their necks. And they would certainly use that. Of course, there's a tradition of Dhaka, of wild cannabis. So there are lots of drugs. Oh, and and of course, there's, there's, fly algaric as well. So there are hallucinogens, there's speed, there's hemp, there there are lots of things available
0: uh, throughout
1: history to make warriors more fearless.
0: Is there a a modern equivalent today or has has all of that gone by the by?
1: Well, although we've talked about it being incompatible with modern warfare, you you look at the Second World War and you see uh, alcohol, rice wine, sake being used by kamikaze pilots. I I suppose one could say, better kamikaze than karaoke. But But the the 6,000...
0: Another kind of suicide.
1: You know, of the uh, 6,000-odd kamikaze pilots who died in attacking American and Allied ships during the Second World War, uh, I suspect that none of them would have passed a breathalyzer test.
0: Hmm. And
1: even more recently, is there any... Well, more recently, there's some good examples of how... It isn't compatible with modern warfare. If you take, for example, September two thousand, when the West Side Boys, uh, in fact, historically accurately speaking, they were called the West Side Niggers. That's what they call themselves. They had captured eleven Irish Rangers. It ended up with UK Special Forces, the SAS and the SBS, backed by one Para, going in and hitting them extremely hard. Now, these people were appalling. They were guerrilla fighters, they were thugs, they were stoned on skunks, mac, uh, alcohol, you name it. They had hacked off arms, they'd raped, they uh, had a capacity to pull hearts out of people who were still alive and eat them uh, raw. They were so mad that some of them wore Wedding dresses, they wore wigs, they wore amulets and charms made out of human fingers and pubic hair. They thought they were the bee's knees. Their commanders had names like Savage and Terminator. But when they came across modern Western tactics and modern special forces, they were absolutely wiped out. Hundreds of them were killed. And it was a very successful British operation. Were,
0: they were all high, were
1: they? What, what had happened is that uh, the, the, the British uh, cleverly had waited till uh, the early hours after a heavy drinking session and drugs-taking session uh, on the part of the West Side Boys. The, the British went in and took them out then it's always a question of timing. They always say that uh, the American forces in Somalia in 93 always used to time their raids for when uh, the, the, the locals in Mogadishu and elsewhere uh, had, had finished their cat sessions and were coming down from it or was it were sleeping it off. So it, it's a question of timing. But it's Western tactics, usually
0: outfox, crazed
1: people on drugs.
0: Okay, so as the sort of aggression stroke fearlessness uh, improvements from taking narcotics became less important we're moving into the 20th century, uh, drug use for endurance, that became more of a thing?
1: That became far more important. Uh, basic drugs like cocaine, for example, were, were widely available. Uh, during the First World War, the British had had a pill called Forced March that allowed troops to go further and faster. By the Second World War, you really had amphetamines kicking in big time. Uh, The Germans had Pervitin, which I suppose sounds like a Viagra for flashes, but it was essentially an early crystal meth. They've always said that Blitzkrieg would probably have been impossible uh, without those sort of narcotics being available. And it allowed the troops to go for days on end. And Get through when their opponents couldn't defend against them, couldn't defend against the repeated attacks and counterattacks the Germans were able to to, to commit, commit to.
0: So, do you think if, if uh, even if Hitler hadn't ordered the halt of the Blitzkrieg before our men were evacuated from Dunkirk, it might have halted anyway due to the, they'd run out of puff?
1: They might have run out of puff, but certainly the Germans, if you look at that part of the war, the Germans already had a plan yellow and a plan red and had to rearm and regroup and thought they might be attacked, counterattacked by the French from Boulogne. The Germans were also facing 1.4 million armed Frenchmen and three and a half thousand modern tanks. They didn't realise the French would simply roll over quite so quickly. But Going into Poland and Russia, there was certainly a lot of use of Pervitin. And in the same way, the the Brits were using uh, Benzedrine a huge amount um, in things like bomber command. It was extremely important to keep the crews awake and alert. And there was always a problem of nodding off on long missions over Germany. Even today, endurance drugs are important. Uh, There's certainly uh, uh, no doubt that China, Russia, and other countries are developing um, narcotics that allow their troops to stay awake longer and to endure the privations of warfare and to make them more alert. They will be among the first to snaffle the narcotic improvements that enhance the performance of athletes, for example, you, you can be sure that that will filter down to the military as well. Uh,
0: the third area that we mentioned at the beginning was drugs that have become recreational in the military sphere.
1: Yes, and they've always been around. I mean, for the Brits, it has got to be, I suppose, alcohol. Um, alcohol has always been a driver of many armed forces and certainly uh, allowed the men and women to de-stress in between campaigns or battles. I mean, the Romans used to drink like hell, uh, and that was an extremely important part.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think their rations, water rations, were... Well, wine, light wine rather than water. Well, they? you wouldn't want to drink water in those days. No. So. <laughs> well, or even in... Yeah, exactly. So the alcohol was killing bad water as well. Yes, as, you know, in the
1: same true. way that in Elizabethan London, it would have been beer. So so it, it, it was extremely important. But rum and gin were the backbone of, of the British Army and the British Navy for, for, for centuries. If you look at the amounts of rum being handed out to the British Army, on campaign abroad it was a vast amount that that has always been the way
0: and once they once they got used to a certain ration you couldn't take it away from them easily anyway it was part of p- part, part of their payment one of the very few perks yeah well exactly
1: you know that that has gone on i suppose to the Br- to the present day I and mean, the the brits like their pubs it's 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 a cultural thing you know, you saw it among airmen in the in the second world war that drinking was absolutely key to their being able to wind down uh, and and survive and get over the loss of their comrades in between missions.
0: Yeah, actually, I've got a book here, Enemy Coast Ahead by Guy Gibson. And my grandfather wrote the introduction. Um, and uh, in it, one of the things he says uh, towards the end is, and he's very, obviously, he's very complimentary about Guy Gibson. He says, it may well be that the references to parties and drunks in this book will give rise to criticism, and even to outbursts of unctuous rectitude. I do not attempt to excuse them, if only because I entirely approve of them. In any case, the drunks were mainly on near beer and high rather than potent spirits. Remember that these crews' shining youth on the threshold of life lived under circumstances of intolerable strain. They were, in fact, and they knew it, faced with the virtual certainty of death, probably in one of its least pleasant forms.
1: There you go. It's 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 very important. And if, if Bomber says it, then he has a point. And and no one knew the stress that his crews went through more than he did. So he's he's right there. And smoking was key as well. I mean it's amazing in, in the trenches of the First World War that woodbines and other forms of cigarette were, were key to boosting the morale of men in the trenches. If you're sodden, if you're sitting in a, either a bunker or a trench in Passchendaele with that dreadful blue slipper clay clinging to you uh, with the smell of death all around, then having a smoke was absolutely vital.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's very much one of those things. Obviously, it doesn't knock you out like too much alcohol. You can share it at the bottom of your foxhole your cigarette, or especially when you feel there's very little you're in control of. The one thing you perhaps are in control of is when you have your cigarette and how you're going to smoke it, and it's going to be your two, three minutes of of just for you. And you can trade it or give it as a present.
1: I mean, it's no coincidence that Woodbine Willie, the famous Reverend Stoddard Kennedy, uh, poet and padre, uh, used to go out handing Woodbines out to the men before they went over the top. It was just a small gesture, and a small gesture of, of showing that someone cared about them and someone was thinking about them.
0: Yes, sadly, of course, snuff, which is a form of tobacco, which you sniff up your nose, is no more a thing. Um, well, not really a thing. Jamie, didn't you have a little touch of snuff from out of Marengo's hoof? I, I did have snuff from
1: Marengo's hoof, the, the Napoleon's horse's hoof. Uh, I, if you go to the National Army Museum, you'll see the skeleton Marengo. It's missing, I think, two hooves. One is uh, now in the uh, officer's mess at St. James's Palace. And that's where I took some snuff and was then so wired I couldn't sleep for two days. And uh, the other, I think, was given to the Duke of Wellington and used as an inkstand. Uh,
0: so I won't be taking snuff again, but it's definitely died out. So I think Copenhagen came out on top there. <laughs> he certainly did. I also like that story you tell about when, after the Battle of Waterloo, Copenhagen gave him a bloody good kick.
1: Well, why not? <laughs> so someone, someone had to put the Duke in his
0: place. <laughs> yes, nobody else could.
1: But where things go wrong is with the 1960s onwards, when you start getting synthetic drugs, and that's when you get really psychoactive substances that cause mayhem uh, among the armed forces. And it came to a head, I suppose, in Vietnam. By 1969, the Department of Defense, the United States, basically showed that 50% of American soldiers out in Vietnam were regular drug users. By 1973, the year they withdrew from Vietnam, uh, that had risen to 70%, and 30% essentially were on really heavy-duty drugs like heroin, LSD, um, and speedballing as well. So it, it it became a serious problem. The best example of that, I suppose, can be be seen as uh, Firebase uh, Mary Ann. Hmm. Well, in 1971, March 1971, uh, there were 231 uh, GIs, Based at the fire base. they were handing over um, to the South Vietnamese army, uh, the Arvin, and there were about 21 of their soldiers there as well. The entire firebase was collapsing. Morale was incredibly low. They, they knew that things were going bad. They weren't interested. Discipline was gone. Uh, you're talking about an army that the number of fraggings, the killings of NCOs and, and junior officers had increased.
0: What do you mean, they shot in the back?
1: Or, or grenades dropped into their sleeping quarters, that sort of or thing. By
0: what, by their own soldiers? Yes, yes. yes. And that, that, that had
1: absolutely increased by that stage. Uh, there was one case where an entire cookhouse was uh, taken out with grenades. I mean, it was... It, it, well, they burned it. it <laughs> yes, it was that sort of thing. And it was getting bad. And, and Marianne is a fine example of this, because by that stage, they were, they were absolutely stoned, bombed out of their minds... Um, with drugs and alcohol. It got so bad that several of the soldiers were breaking into Claymore mines, uh, anti-personnel mines, taking out the plastic explosive and eating it, thinking that they would get a bigger high and and dying as a result. Uh, What happens? The Viet Cong sneak in and attack, throwing satchel charges and running amok in the camp. And 33 Americans and South Vietnamese are killed, hundreds are wounded. And it it was a serious low point. But it just shows that the, the, the depths to which morale and discipline can sink and fragment and disintegrate if the drug situation isn't controlled, if recreational drugs are allowed to take hold.
0: Yeah, and of course, if you're a conscript army as opposed to the modern British and American army, some of them feel they've got nothing to lose they've been dragged into it uh, they don't want to be there they haven't volunteered in any fashion and the only way to numb the pain is to take whatever they can get their hands on and they weren't clever enough or connected enough to be able to get out of the draft so you know
1: by that stage you had some pretty low caliber people as well among them
0: so jamie in conclusion um, narcotics in warfare is it still an option today it's still very much being looked at by different defence
1: departments around the world. It's all about getting an edge, keeping awake, being alert, being more intelligent. And so until the day warfare and battles end, you'll always find senior generals and scientists trying to find ways of
0: giving their men and women the advantage. Fantastic. And to think we got through this with no more than a glass of water and a cup of coffee. Thank you, James. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck.